Well, good morning, church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Really glad to be with you this morning as we continue looking at the Gospel of John. I'm going to invite you to stand as we look at John chapter 1, 35 through 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. It's on page 886 in the Pew Bible. Open up a Bible or turn on your device and get your eyes on these words, please. Picking it up in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him at that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael, and coming, saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Would you now make the long journey from your feet down to your knees if you're physically able to, and uh, just kneel with me in a moment of silence and humility before the Lord? Lord, as we saying this morning, we fall upon our knees in repentance and submission. Lord, we have sought things other than you this week. We have put things before you, our own wants, our own desires, our own idols. And Lord, you are gracious enough to pursue us in our faulty and hollow pursuits and to draw us back and to bring us near. Lord, may you meet each one of us where we're at this morning, all in different places of our life journey and our spiritual journey. Lord, I thank you that you have already met us there and that you're walking with us. May we be attentive to your voice this morning. May we be aware of your spirit. May we enter into this story 
and interact with you, a living God who spoke 2,000 years ago, but speaks afresh and anew every day. So we ask that the reality of you interacting with your disciples here in this story would just be a catalyst for us being aware of how you interact with us, your disciples, here in 2022. May you have your way in us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, as we journey through the gospel according to John, we're going to see a lot of Jesus' words. He speaks a lot in this gospel. Some of you have a red-letter edition Bible where his words will show up in red. Some of you don't. And I already mentioned this before. Don't get caught up in arguing over that. There's actually movements who argue over whether these letters should be in red or not. Don't worry about it. Read the Bible in context, figure out where is Jesus speaking, what does he mean, what is he getting at, and his words are more holy than the words of his disciples who are recording spiritual truths. All scripture is breathed out by the mouth of God and useful for edification, for teaching, and for growing us up in righteousness. The reality is, as we go through this book, we're going to see a lot of Jesus' teaching. And in this passage that we just read, it's the first time that he speaks in the Gospel of John. Not the first time that he spoke in his life. Remember, he's around 30 years old at this point, so he's got a whole lifetime of speaking. In fact, Jesus, and we talked about this in December as we remember Jesus, God in flesh coming, Jesus had to learn how to speak. His parents had to teach him how to speak. They had to to correct his dialect and, and his pronunciation. He had to learn. God in flesh humbled. The, the, the creator, the ultimate teacher, having to be taught. It's a beautiful picture. But we see here in this passage, as Jesus interacts with his disciples, his first, his, the first record of his verbal interaction with his disciples. And, and I hesitate to do this because I, I really, and I said this last week, I want us to live in this story. I don't want to just simply teach this story. I don't want to simply study the text. I want us to immerse ourselves in the gospel of John as a journey. And so I hesitate to like give you points and to try and, that's one of the amazing things about scripture, right? You can read this book over and over and over again. You can read the same passages over and over and over again and get different nuances, get different insights, get, get your mind blown in different ways. And so one of the challenges for me as a pastor is figuring out which angle do I take this sermon at? Which angle do we look at it from? Right, like a diamond has many different cuts and all the different cuts will reflect light a little bit differently. Same thing with the text. And so this morning, I wanna walk through this text and make some observations and trust that the Holy Spirit will bring different things out for different people. But for you organized type, you type A people, I, there, there are kind of four observations that I've made as I've gone through here about how Jesus interacts with his people in this passage. And I think it's a pattern for how he interacts with his people throughout the scriptures and in the Gospel of John. Four, four patterns here. We see that Jesus asks revealing questions. We see that he makes relational invitations. He, he makes personal transformations and powerful promises. So as we walk through this text, you can look for those patterns here. I'm going to kind of pause on each one of those and and make some commentary. We're going to study a little bit of what's going on here between Jesus and his disciples, and we're going to see that Jesus asks, asks us revealing questions, relational, he gives us relational invitations, he makes personal transformations and powerful promises. Let's pick it up in verse 35. It says, The next day, again, John was standing with the two disciples. And and for those of you who were here last week, the preceding passage, it talks about John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's got some followers, some disciples. This word disciple, it means follower, apprentice. It's a, a rabbi and a teacher. 
It's somebody who is literally following a teacher around the countryside as they're teaching. They, 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 were, they didn't just go into a classroom or a, a church and have an expert share information. It was life-on-life life journey. That's how it worked in the first century. These rabbis, these teachers would have disciples who would come along with them and follow them and observe them, and they would teach along the way. They would point out things that were happening as they taught. And John the Baptist had some disciples, some people following him. If you remember in the preceding passage, he was saying, don't look to me. I'm just a forerunner. I'm here to point you to one who is greater, to the prophet, to the Messiah. And so we pick it up in 35. John's standing there with two of his disciples. So two of these people who are, who are following John the Baptist, verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by. So John the Baptist is out there with his disciples. They're out in the wilderness. They're out in the, in the desert, by the lakes, going from town to town. And, and Jesus comes by. And John the Baptist pauses. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. That, that phrase was used up in verse 29 when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the whole point of last week's sermon was to pick up on John saying, teaching us to behold the Lamb of God. Behold Jesus. Get our eyes fixed upon Jesus. This word behold means to stop, to look, to see, to pay attention. It, it, it's the equivalent to like if, uh, if a pastor happened to notice you falling asleep during a sermon. Never happened, Right? And he was like, hey, wake up, and you startled. That, that's what John is doing here. Hey, pay attention. This is the moment. There's something different, something unique, something special happening here. Don't miss it. Behold the Lamb of God. And we talked about what the Lamb of God meant more last week. So if you missed the sermon last week, you can go back and listen to that to understand that phrase and that title, Lamb of God. It says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They did exactly what John the Baptist wanted them to do as he was preparing them. Don't look to me. Don't look to me. Don't trust your pastor. Don't trust your podcaster. Don't trust your author. They're only as good as they are pointing you towards Jesus. If the buck stops with them, if it's kind of a cul-de-sac around a pastor, an author, a podcaster, a spiritual leader, be careful. Watch out. They're probably starting a cult. They're probably going to use you and abuse you and hurt you and destroy you and, and cause you to question your faith. John the Baptist isn't doing that. He's saying, I am a conduit. I am preparing the way for the one, the way, the truth, and the life. His name is Jesus. And so these disciples, they pick up on that, and it says that they, they saw Jesus coming, and they followed Jesus. They left John the Baptist, and they got in line with Jesus. Verse 38, and Jesus turned and he saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? The ESV translates it as, what are you seeking? I really like the NIV in this translation where it says, what do you want? What a great question. What do you want? These disciples leave John the Baptist. They, they get in line. They start following Jesus. And he turns and his first words to them, what do you want? This is the first revealing question that Jesus asks. And, and you can take this two ways. One is just a, a normal question, right? Picture yourself in this scene. I mean, if you're walking down a road somewhere and two random people start following you, you're going to run. You're going you're gonna to look behind. Maybe you recognize them, I, right? You, you might turn and say, what do you want? What do you need? What are you after? That's what Jesus does. 
And there's this real earthiness, just this practical response. What are you seeking? What do you want? But there's a deeper spiritual meaning to this question. There's this just practical reality of this is how life works, but there's something deeper going on here. Jesus pauses and he asks them, what do you want? This is an incredibly revealing question that is super important and necessary for us to consider. Whether you're a new believer, a new follower of Jesus, whether you've been following Jesus for all of your life, whether you're a non-believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're curious, you're here because you're curious about this, Jesus would have us assess our desires, our motives, and our wants for life and from him. So what Jesus is doing here. He's looking at them and saying, what, what do you want? That, that deeper meaning of that question isn't just, why are you following me? But it's like, what are you after as you're following me, right? That might be the same question you ask people who jump in line and follow after you, like, are you trying to pickpocket me? Are you trying to follow me to my house? Are you trying to follow me into my car? What do, you, what do you want from me? What's your motive? What's your desire? What leads you to, to change your direction and follow me? And us humans, we are experts at suppression and deception. We're experts at suppression and deception. I think what Jesus is doing here, this is a revealing question where he's trying to get at our heart, at our motives, at the things that are going on deeper inside of us. Because the disciples in the first century, just like you and I today, were experts at suppression and deception. Oftentimes we suppress our own desires. Especially if you've grown up in a religious environment, sometimes you, like, we, we don't ask the question, what do we want? Right? You can't ask that question. You ask the question, what does God want? And so sometimes we genuinely say, I, I, I want what God wants, but sometimes we disingenuinely don't even ask what we want. We don't even assess our own hearts, our own motives, our own reasons for following God. And then we're also experts at deception. Like we, we learn the religious game and we learn the right answers and we learn how to deceive people and we learn how to deceive ourselves. And some of us have become so numb to actually knowing what's going on in our soul, in our head, in our heart. We don't even know what we want or we know what we want, but we're afraid to admit it out loud or to tell anyone or to even tell God because we know it's not right. We know it has mixed motives. And so Jesus, as he interacts with his disciples, one of the first questions as you join this journey of following Jesus, is Jesus going to be asking you this question? What do you want? Assessing your motives, trying to get you to think deeper. But as we continue to walk with Jesus day in and day out, year after year, we need to come back to this question that Jesus asks us. What do you want? We can see this evidence of our suppression and deception all over in culture, right? Like, Former generations, I've talked to a lot of people from former generations who rarely changed jobs. They worked, many, many, many people worked the same job for their entire career and they hated it. They suppressed their own desires. That was part of the culture. But then on the flip side, now, like kind of the millennial culture, right, we change jobs all the time. We deceive ourselves. We think the grass is greener on the other side. And so it doesn't matter what era you're from, we have these different ways that we suppress what's really going on inside of us. And some of the frustration with the church among the younger generation is that people haven't been honest about what they want, about what's going on, about their brokenness. But then we can also become deceptive, right? We can put on a religious face, we can pretend like everything's going well. I mean, you look at, look at the skyrocketing divorce rates over the last few decades, 
And people will tell you that they, that they ended up getting divorced because they suppressed their own desires or they were deceived that, that a divorce would, would help make them better. And, and there are painful circumstances. There's people in our church who have walked through painful divorces. And God is for you. We are here for you. This is a family journey. But we, we know that this brokenness of life, it, it's an evidence that we are really good at suppressing what's really going on inside of us, deceiving ourselves and deceiving others. And so Jesus invites you and I to ask this question, what, what do we want? What are we seeking? And in this religious environment, many of us don't consider it. When I want, went on sabbatical uh, last summer, I was wrestling through this, and, and uh, I went, I've, I've shared this story, I'm not going to belabor the point, I've shared the story a lot, but I went up the first couple days on sabbatical, I went up to a hermitage to spend time with God, and I went up there, and I wrote in my journal, first day, I wrote in my journal, God, what do you want for me, and what do you want from me? In my, in my religious mindset, God, what do you want? I'm about you, I'm about what you want, and certainly that's important. But I had had a one-way relationship with God. I had never considered that he might ask me what I want. So I went out on this, on this hermitage, this silence and solitude retreat, and I felt God's, I, I felt like God was saying, Andrew, what do you want? And I, I've shared this before. I wanted to go fishing and eat brats, and so God was like, let's go fishing and eat brats, and it was amazing. I had planned on fasting and praying, and he was like, let's eat and let's fish. It was great. And I, and I came back from that, and I met with a spiritual director, and I was wrestling through that. I actually didn't even share him this, share this story with him yet. I went, and I sat down with him, and, and we spent a few minutes in silence. And then he goes, Andrew, what do you want? I'm like, Why, why'd you ask me that? He's like, because I think it's important. What do you? And he had no clue that I had this experience with God up at the hermitage. Then I met with a, with a mentor a little while later, who said, what do you want? And my instinct was to correct them. It doesn't matter what I want. It only matters what God wants. I'm a servant of his. Absolutely true. But again, I had created my relationship with God to be one way where it's just, I'm his servant, I'm his servant, I'm his servant. God, you are boss. Tell me what to do. And Jesus in the gospels actually says, no longer do I call you servant, but I call you friend. This doesn't take away the reality that we're still his servant, but it's not a one-way relationship. Relationship requires give and take. It requires two ways. And Jesus here comes and he asks the disciples, what do you want? This, this led me, so I wrote that down in my journal. Okay, what do I want? And I had to assess that. This is a revealing question. I had to actually dig into my soul, dig into my heart, and figure out what I really wanted. Did I still want God, or do I want the world? And you will not grow as a Christian if you're not constantly assessing that. What are you seeking? What are you after? And you're going to find often that there's days and moments and seasons of your life where you actually value things more than God. And God in his love and his grace, he will correct you. That's what he's doing here with the disciples. He's, he's testing their motives. He's questioning them. He's not testing them as far as like, if you get the answer wrong, you're not allowed to follow me because they get this answer wrong over and over and over again throughout the gospels. That's what we'll see as we journey through this together. What he's doing is he's trying to get them to think deeper, to, to go deeper, to, to ask these revealing questions, to get to know their soul, to get to know their motives, to get to know their desires so they can bring it into the light. This question that Jesus asks, what do you want? The right answer is Jesus on his terms, not ours. 
See, one of the tensions throughout this gospel is that the disciples, they all had mixed motives for Jesus. They wanted him to be a political ruler, a king. They wanted him to bring freedom for the Jews from the Romans. And Jesus, right from the beginning of his interactions with them, is trying to bring them deeper. It's not just about your your physical, earthly circumstance. You can't use me to get your way. That's what he's getting at here. And oftentimes, we use Jesus to get our way, don't we? The right answer to Jesus' question, what are you seeking, what do you want, is you, Jesus. I want relationship with you on your terms. But the real answer, what's the real answer for you? You know the right answer if you've been around church, Jesus. But have you paused to open up your life and say, okay, what's the real answer for me? Maybe it's moral purity. Maybe I just want people to be more moral. Maybe I want to be more moral myself, and maybe I want other people to be more moral. That might not have anything to do with loving Jesus. That might actually just be you wanting to conform yourself and other people into an image that you think will work better in this life. It may or may not be holy. What about easing of a religious conscience? Sometimes we do devotions and we come to church and we stand and we sing and we pray and we go through religious motions so that we can ease our religious conscience, so that we can feel like we're, in a, we're appeasing a holy God. Maybe it's personal comfort. If you're honest with how you spend your time, how you spend your money, maybe, you're, maybe you really want personal comfort. Maybe you want gratification of the flesh, the desire of the eyes and the and the cravings of the flesh. Maybe that's what you really want. Maybe you want to feel good. Maybe you want to escape reality. Maybe you want to avoid pain and suffering. Maybe you want affirmation and praise. Maybe you want power. Maybe you want acceptance. All of us have these mixed motives. And we tend to use Jesus sometimes to get these things. We tend to sometimes suppress these things and slap Jesus on it But here's the reality. We need to probe and ask and understand what we really want. And if it's wrong, we confess it. You don't try to deny it and say, no, I actually want Jesus more than I want comfort. Say, no, Jesus, I want comfort. And that's wrong. Like, it's not wrong to want comfort. It's not wrong to want affirmation and praise or, or even power in the right way. Some of these things are God-given, but what Jesus is doing here as he interacts with these disciples, he's saying, what do you want the most? The right answer is relationship with Jesus on his terms, not using Jesus for our agenda. And so we probe that, we assess that, and if our motives are wrong, if our wants are wrong or misaligned, we confess it. Plain and simple. And if they're right, we pursue it. And it's going to be a mix of both. Jesus invites us on to this journey of asking these revealing questions, getting to the heart. Let's keep going. Verse, uh, middle of verse 38. So he asked them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? We don't know exactly what their motives were at this point, they, they definitely were intrigued with Jesus. That's how the journey of following Jesus starts, with intrigue, wanting to know more. They wanted to spend time with Jesus and build a relationship with him. So they say, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. Here's that per- first relational invitation. 
Jesus invites anyone who would be intrigued with him, who's curious about him, whether you haven't yet decided to follow him or whether you have been following him for your years. He's saying, come, come with me. Immerse yourself in my life. Follow me on this journey. Come and you will see. There's this practical reality here, right? Where, where he says, come with me and you'll see. There's this hospitality thing going on. But Jesus opens up his life to these disciples. He doesn't say, come and join me next Sunday at 10 o'clock to hear a talk and I'll teach you. That's not to say that this is wrong or bad, but it's insufficient for the journey of following Jesus. We need to do life with other disciples who are asking, revealing questions and responding to Jesus's relational invitation. Come, come and you will see, come and you will see, come spend time with me. Come, come immerse yourself in my word and my life and my people. Middle of verse 39. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So Andrew was one of the two disciples that was standing with John the Baptist who left John the Baptist to go and follow Jesus. The other disciple isn't named. Uh, I tend to think it's John, the author of the gospel, the one who Jesus loved. And there's reasons for that 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 unfold throughout the gospel, but it doesn't really matter. He's not named. It's Andrew and another disciple. They leave John the Baptist. They come and follow Jesus. And then Andrew says in verse 40 that his brother was Simon Peter. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So from this very initial interaction with Jesus, Andrew is convinced that Jesus, he's He's at least in that moment convinced. And throughout the story, they're going to question, they're going to doubt, welcome to the journey of following Jesus. It's not linear. It's not like I believed and now I'm good, right? We know this. We see this in the disciples. It's amazing. There's enough belief. There's enough trust. There's enough faith. Remember that word that we talked about last week, pistis. It's the word for belief. It's used 84 times in the gospel of John. It means to have to have faith in or to trust. So there's enough faith, there's enough trust in Andrew to go and find his brother, Simon, whose name becomes Peter, and to tell him that this Jesus guy, he's the Messiah, he's the promised Savior, he's the anointed one that was talked about and prophesied in the Old Testament. He's here. God's promised deliverer is here. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. That's a a great response, by the way, for, for disciples, followers of Jesus. When we when we find Jesus, when, when Jesus asks us these revealing questions and we begin to get to know ourselves and we begin to probe the depths of ourselves and we hear Jesus' invitation to come and follow him, we go and find others and say, I have met this man who, who reveals my soul and heals my soul and he has invited me onto this journey in life that gives me purpose and meaning. You should come and meet him too. That's what Andrew does. He goes and tells his brother Simon, and Simon comes, verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Here's this personal transformation coming into play. Throughout the gospel, as we see Jesus interacting with people, he's going to speak words of truth and transformation over them. 
says, Simon, you, you are not who you think you are. You are not who the world thinks you are. You are something greater. I have a different identity and purpose for you. Jesus may not come to us and change our names, but he comes to us and he gives us a new identity and purpose. He transforms you and I personally. Any disciple, any apprentice, any follower who would come to Jesus and honestly assess themselves and, and receive his relational invitation to follow him, to walk with him, to come and see who he is, he looks them in the eye and he says, here's who you truly are. Your identity is not wrapped up in the world. Your identity is not wrapped up in your family of origin. Your identity is not wrapped up in the expectations that other people have of you. See, Simon, he was the son of a fisherman. There were expectations. There was a pattern of life. There was a family of origin who shaped him and formed him. And Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, you from this point on shall be called Peter, which means rock. And Jesus later will tell him that upon you, I will build my church. Well, upon his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, he builds his church. And this man, this common fisherman, likely less literate than many of the people around him, feeling like he, he kind of had a narrow path in life, Jesus transforms him from the inside out, uses him for something amazing that he could never do on his own. Keep going, verse 30, uh, 43. The next day, so that's one day, Jesus interacting with his disciples, we see these revealing questions, these, these relational invitations and personal transformation that he makes. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Another relational invitation. Follow me. Walk with me. Come with me. Track with me. It's this invitation to a journey, to, to learn from Jesus by observance and immersion, not just sitting in a classroom and studying about Jesus, but being with Jesus. It's, a, it's an invitation to intimacy. Follow me. Do life with me. The highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the questions and the doubts. I want it all. I want to eat with you. I want to drink with you. I want to be with you. That's the life of Jesus with his disciples. It's communal. It's relational. He says, follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the one that the Old Testament points us to and proclaims and tells us about. I love Nathanael's response, verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Galilee and Nazareth, these towns in Canaan, these towns were near each other and they were rivals. I grew up in Grand Marais, Minnesota, up on Lake Superior, and and, and us Grand Marais people think Grand Marais is pretty awesome. But to get to Grand Marais, you have to drive through Silver Bay. You know what's not awesome? Silver Bay. Silver Bay, it's like, what? It's a mining town. They don't even have cool like restaurants on the water. Grand Marais, it's a tourist town. We have cool restaurants on the water. But guess what? In both towns live people created in God's image. One's not better than the other, but that's how we do it as people, right? We're from Minnesota, not Wisconsin. Thank the good Lord. Now, some of you are from Wisconsin, but where do you live now? Here, right? You get it. 
This is, this is just a natural thing that people do. We like, to, we like to prioritize our space, our people, all, our culture, our cities. There's, there's a healthy level of hometown pride, and then there's an unhealthy level of hometown pride. And here, Nathaniel has that. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So they're saying, they're telling Nathaniel that this Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's the promised one from the Old Testament. And he's saying, no, he's from Nazareth. He's from Wisconsin, nothing good. Royalty doesn't come from Wisconsin. If he really is the Messiah, he would have come from Jerusalem, the holy city, the prominent city, because as people, we like power and prominence and prestige, and Jesus comes to undercut all of our idolatry. And so Nathaniel is expecting that this Messiah would come from a great place. Well, in the Old Testament prophesied that he would come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the little city that Jesus was born in, but he grew up in Nazareth. So he's saying, no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Philip said to him, pick it up in verse 46 again, towards the end, come and see. There's that relational invitation. You have all these preconceived notions about who Jesus is, what Jesus should do, how Jesus should look, where he should be from. You have your agenda for, for what you want from Jesus and your expectations for how Jesus should operate. But just come and see. Come and explore. Come be with him. Build some intimacy with him and see what happens. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming. And so Nathanael, to his credit, he's like, all right, I'll go see this man from Nazareth and, and I'll give him a chance. We'll see. Maybe something good can come from Wisconsin. And so he goes to see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is an interesting phrase from Jesus. It, it's interpreted differently uh, by different people. For one, I love the word behold here, right? We've seen it twice in John chapter 1 already, and it's always about beholding Jesus, beholding Jesus, look and see. There's this incredible reality, though, that God looks to us and he sees us, right? He says, behold, look, Nathaniel, a human created in my image and likeness of worth and value, and he doesn't argue with him about Nazareth versus Canaan and Bethsaida. He doesn't say, oh, look at, Nathaniel, look at Nathaniel from, from Canaan. What a backwoods hick. No, he says, behold. Behold, an Israelite, indeed, he's a, he's a Jew, he's an Israelite, and he says, in whom there is no deceit. It's like Jesus is calling out a positive characteristic in Nathaniel. This man is actually an honest man. He uttered his first reaction to Jesus. Could anything good come from Nazareth? I think Jesus actually values and honors that. He's an honest man. He's not playing games. He's not, he's not putting on a religious face and talking and be like, oh, well. he, he, he just says what he thinks. Jesus seems to honor that. He's, he's not a deceiver. There's an interesting parallel here, too, that he says he's an Israelite. If you remember the story, for, uh, the Old Testament story, that God transforms Jacob into Israel. Jacob means deceiver, and he becomes the father of the Israelites. His name is transformed from Jacob to Israel. Jacob, deceiver, Israel, the people of God. And so he's looking into Nathaniel's life, and he's saying, it, it could be interpreted as he's just, he's not a liar. He has other sin patterns. We all have them, but his isn't deceit. His isn't lying. Or it's a play on this reversal of Israel born in Jacob, born a deceiver, but transformed to become the people of God. Nathaniel, 
by nature and choice a deceiver, but no longer that. He's now a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's a, he's a man of God. Nathanael says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when I saw you under the fig tree, or when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Again, Jesus sees, he knows. This fig tree imagery, it's often when, when people would like stop and take a break from their work or they would be in prayer or contemplation. We don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. It's likely that he was under a fig tree contemplating his life, praying, seeking God, wondering what his purpose and meaning in life was. And Jesus uses that intimate moment to say, I saw you there under the fig tree. Nathaniel, I see you. I know you. I know your desires. I know your motives. I know your questions. I know your doubts. I know your frustrations. I saw you. And this very reality of Jesus seeing Philip, he feels known by Jesus. That's one of the relational realities not a religious reality, a relational reality that you and I need to foster with Jesus, that he knows us. He knows your motives. He knows your desires. He knows your wants. He knows your needs, whether you're willing to admit them or not. He sees us. And he's not disgusted or repulsed by us. He sees us and he pursues us makes relational invitation to us and personal transformation to us. He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. What a transformation. Right? In verse 46, upon first hearing of Jesus, Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then after this interaction with Jesus, after Jesus sees him, after Jesus affirms who Nathaniel really is and sees him for who he really is, he responds by saying, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Through this process of revealing questions, relational invitations, and interacting with Jesus, Nathaniel is transformed. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Here's the, the second important revealing question in this text. Why do you believe? That's what Jesus is asking Nathaniel. Why do you believe? Is it just because I, in a supernatural way, read your mail to you? I checked your search history. I saw you underneath that fig tree. And here I am with you in relationship inviting you onto a journey with me? You're right, Nathaniel. I haven't discarded you or discredited you because I've seen all of you. In fact, I'm welcoming you onto this journey. And he's saying, is, is that why you believe? Just because I use the supernatural power to see you? My omniscience, my omnipresence, that, that's why you believe? And notice Jesus doesn't ridicule him for that. He, in fact, affirms it. Because like we talked about last week, belief requires beholding, it requires seeing, it requires tasting, it requires experiencing God. Now, Jesus later in this gospel will say, blessed are those who, who, who believe without seeing. But he's talking about the physical body of Jesus. The reality is that belief requires seeing Jesus, experiencing him in his body, through his word, with other people. And so he, he says, do you believe because I said that I saw you under the fig tree? And then here's the last portion of this text 
that I want to pull out before we transition to communion, Jesus gives him this powerful promise. Two promises that he gives to Nathaniel. And actually, it, it turns here from, from singular. So in verse 50, when he says, because I said I saw you, that's singular. He's talking specifically to Nathaniel. But then he turns it at the end of verse 50 to, to, to a communal you, to a, a, a plural you. He says, you will see greater things than these. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a powerful promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. He's saying, as you walk with me, as you do life with me, as you listen to me, as you open up my word, and that's for us, right? He was the living word among them, and they were studying the Old Testament. They were looking to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of that, how he is the Messiah. He's saying, as you do life with me, as you journey with me together, as you practice my ways, as you believe my truth, as you experience my life, you will see greater things than this. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob, remember the deceiver whose name is transformed into Israel, when, when, when Jacob has this dream and it's, it's called Jacob's ladder and he sees this ladder between heaven and earth and there's angels coming and going between heaven and earth. Jesus is referring to that, which these disciples would have known that story. And he's saying, you will see and experience greater things now that God is here among you. Jesus is the ladder. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life between heaven and earth. Now in Jesus, heaven has kissed earth. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is saying this journey of following him as we, as we ask ourselves these revealing questions and listen to Jesus' revealing questions, as we follow his relational invitation to walk with him, to apprentice him, as, as we are personally transformed, he gives us this powerful promise that you will see and experience greater things. Greater things are yet to come. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Join him on the journey. Do life with him. We believe, church family, by beholding the ways and the truth and the life of Jesus as we follow him together. So the journey that Jesus is inviting us onto. And so, as I mentioned last week, I want to mention again three ways that I want us to engage the gospel of John together in these coming months. Open our lives to one another. Asking each other revealing questions like, what do you want and why do you believe? Be honest about it. If it's wrong, repent. If it's right, pursue. Open the word, open the gospel of John with one another, and then wait and watch and see what God does. And I am convinced we will together grow in practicing the ways of Jesus, believing the truth, trusting the truth of Jesus, and experiencing his life together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to transition to communion, which is a way that we behold Jesus weekly at Park Community Church. The bread represents his body given for us. The cup represents his blood shed for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you want to follow Jesus today, these elements are here to help fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, to help you behold Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I'm going to pray, and then you can feel... Uh, free to come up or to the station in the back and take communion whenever you feel led and ready. Jesus, we love you. I thank you that you have 
given us this promise that we will see greater things, that we will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I thank you that we have eyes to see you, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And not just corporately the sin of the world, but personally the sin of each one of us. And you have given us your record of righteousness. So as we come to the table this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would receive your forgiveness and that we would walk out in your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.